0: Scott Bowden and Brian Lass right along ringside and ready to go with another big day of Kentucky fried wrestling and that's because it's Jerry Lawler day here at the KFR podcast uh, come on isn't, at,
1: isn't every episode Jerry Lawler day at the Kentucky fried
0: wrestling podcast hey not every week thanks to those ICW invaders who came in here uninvited okay really dude that dude Okay, that I, that is so disrespectful. I... Why are you yelling? Why are, are you yelling? Y- are you done yet? Are you done? Okay, I don't know what happened. I... Man. That is... I, I can't... That's really, really disrespectful. And on Jerry Lawler Day, no less.
1: I'm very sorry. I apologize. I saw Jerry Lawler Day. <laughs> no less.
0: <clears throat> As I was saying, on this week's episode... We will be examining the crowning of the king on May 9th, 1988, as Luller turned in a perfect performance to defeat Kurt Hennig. Uh,
1: I see what you did there. Very, very cute. Do do you mind? Not at all.
0: Do you mind? Not at all. Not at all. Oh, thank you. Yes, we will be honoring that magical moment in Memphis sports history. Memphis? What what Memphis sports history? All right. Settle down over there, Mets boy. I... Okay, you know what? I I'm leaving. And without oh, me. And without, and without me, there is no show. There certainly would be no show without
1: you. That was an accident. I accidentally clicked the button. I was moving the mouse away, so I wouldn't click it and I accidentally clicked it, but back to you. Thank you,
0: Davey. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> We will be looking as the king slingshot his way into immortality, winning the AWA World Championship in front of more than 9,000 fans at the Mid-South Coliseum nearly 30 years ago to the day. I was there along with several of the city's dignitaries, including Memphis Mayor Dick Hackett, who unfortunately was caught in the crossfire of an argument between two rednecks prior to the introductions of the big main event and was ushered out as beers splashed over his Lansky brother's suits. He did make it back in time for the finish, though, and a photo op with the king.
1: That's right, Scott. Today, longtime Memphis wrestling fan and loyal listener of the 605 Super Podcast. What mothership! Not bad. Not bad. You could do better, but not bad.
0: Uh, I, I, I've been working on it.
1: Well, it really shows you've been working on it, really. As I was saying, David Delahousey will be joining Scott as part of our Stinking Redneck segment to discuss how Jerry Lawler really was the equivalent of the home sports team whose popularity transcended beyond Memphis in towns big and small across the mid-south. And Kevin Lawler also returns for part one of a revealing look at what it was like growing up as the son of one of the most controversial figures in wrestling and really the best-known sports celebrity in town for decades. Ah,
0: sounds like a good one. We better get going. We'll be right back after this Royal Proclamation.
2: Jerry, let me ask you something that I've been wondering. The statement that you publicly made out here... The fact that you were going to win the world title in 1985 or retire—has that put unnecessary pressure on Jerry Lawler, and particularly coming in there against a uh, Bachwinkle in a world match? Well, it's you know, it, it has put a lot of pressure. I'll it's tell you one got thing: to it put did. Some extra pressure. It caused a lot of attention. I've had calls from all the all the wrestling magazines, all the uh, reporters around the country have called about it. Everybody picked up on it. And, uh, you know, when you make a statement like that, people are going to listen to it. And I'm sure Bockwinkel, you know, I'm sure that that... Uh, it will give Bockwinkel a little extra incentive because he has the same feelings about me that I have about him. That's one good thing I like about this match, Lance. In wrestling Rick Martell, it was going to be sort of like uh, the confrontation I had with Steve Kern last week. When you go in there against a guy that you really don't have anything against, it's really hard for me to get motivated. I was sitting and wondering, I was thinking... Now, Rick Martell is the kind of a guy, he's the kind of a champion who likes to abide by the rules. You're not going to find a lot of punching. You're not going to find a lot of kicking with a guy. And I'm sitting there thinking... How am i going to get a chance to pull the strap well i don't have to worry about that with nick bachwinkle because he don't like me and brother yeah, right. i don't like him so when i get in there with bachwinkle i'm going to start off from the word go and i'm going to give him the worst beating of his life and when he gets through he's going to have no doubt in his mind who the world heavyweight champion is Well, jerry all i can tell you is they don't come along every day take advantage of the one that's here and good luck to you coming up monday night well buddy. can i stay here for just a minute i understand we have some yeah work yeah, got, yeah the beverly hills champion is sitting back feeling very much in the driver's seat let's hear what bockwinkle had to say about it
3: all right wrestling fans as you can see with me a very happy nick bockwinkle for those of you that don't know in a match held this past week in canada nick bockwinkle seemingly defeated Rick Martell to become for the fourth time heavyweight champion of the world. However, Nick Bockwinkle, the decision, as controversial as there has ever been, the championship committee still not fully convinced just exactly who is world champion. But they have pointed their finger at me. I presently have the belt. So it is simple, and as we all know, usually the first step of a long journey points out to the rest of the trip. I cannot see in any possible way the championship committee can decide anything but the way they already are thinking the thing I guess I like the most about this is the fact that, one, I have regained what is mine. Two, I have to pick up Mr. Martell's championship schedule and hearken for sooth. Lo and behold, where does it take me? To Memphis. To Mr. Jerry Lawler, who has for ages called himself the king of wrestling and a lot of cretinous humanoids in that part of the country seem befit fit to call him the king of wrestling, when in actuality, folks, you are looking at the king of wrestling, the king of sports. Mr. Lawler, I can't think of a more glorious, inspiring way for me to step back into the championship slot than for me to go into the ring with you, who I have had many... Previous battles in which you were not able to attain the heavyweight championship. Now, I really don't care to wrestle you. I really don't. I don't consider you a great wrestler. You're a hell of a man as far when it comes to Fist City. But that's not the name of the game. But you still have cut your niche. And it won't make any bit of difference. Because as the lights seem to be going out, they're going to go out for you, my man. Because I'll give it to you plain and simple. I'm going to get away from Memphis, Tennessee, and I'm still going to be the heavyweight champion, and I'll enjoy kicking you from post to post all over. Well, fans, it appears he said what he was going to do for the fourth-time heavyweight champion of the world, Nick Bockwinkle. We'll be back.
2: Lance, it's going to give me great pleasure. It's going to put a big smile on my face, and it's going to do my heart real good to make him the shortest-lived champion in AWA history because he just won the belt last week and when he loses it this week, he's going to be walking out of Memphis with egg on his face and no belt around his waist. All right! That's what I like to hear. Yeah.
0: And we are back on Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And we are continuing our look at Jerry Lawler's AWA World Heavyweight title win 30 years ago by talking to some of the fans who followed the chase for the title, which was really the overarching storyline for the promotion for so many years dating back to 1974. Uh, and around this time, our very first guest today saw Mr. Wrestling 2 come into the area as part of the initial quest for the title. He was one of the top 10 NWA contenders that Jerry Lawler had to knock off to prove that this hometown star really had what it took to challenge Jack Briscoe for the 10 pounds of gold. I'm talking about David Dallahousie. Welcome to the show, David.
4: Thanks a lot, Scott. It's good to
0: talk to you, man. Yeah, we've been, uh, gosh, I've been swapping messages for for a long time now. I know that uh, I believe you used to read my Kentucky Fried Wrestling column, and I know you've been a fan of the page, not, not only my page, but also the mothership.
4: That is correct, and as a matter of fact, me and you actually spoke uh, around 2002 on the old uh, kayfabe memories uh, page. I think <laughs> I actually sent you. A VHS of some of your stuff that you were asking for. Oh my
0: gosh, I totally forgot about that.
4: Well, you know what? And like a total mark, (laughs) like a total mark. I saved. I printed out the email that you sent back to me and saved it. (laughs) So this is wow. You're you're, uh,
0: do you have sweaty palms right now? Is this like a? Is this? Oh man, (laughs) very nervous. Very nervous. Well don't be. Um
4: I'm kidding. Uh, I'm kidding with you.
0: Yeah, but uh yeah, that's uh well that well that's nice that's nice to hear. Uh and you know, I have I have so many fans all over the world, so it's hard for me to remember <laughs> every interaction, but uh but right. at any rate, thank you very much for, for joining us today. Uh so uh tell me a little bit about your earliest before we get into talking too much about the title win. Let's talk about the very beginning. Lawler was in the middle of his initial chase for the world title. And the great thing about Jerry Jarrett, you know, he had Jack, he had this date on Jack Briscoe, and he got about 6 months worth of great houses out of it, which was just genius. You know, instead of bringing in the world champion like repeatedly and having to pay that extra money that per- that uh, 10% of the gate that the promoters had to give the champ, he would just, you know, create all these personal storylines and this one was designed to not only uh, Get Lawler Over has a championship contender, but also the, the whole plan was for him to turn babyface shortly thereafter. Uh, and you became intrigued when Mr. Wrestling 2 came into the area, right? Uh,
4: that is correct. I, uh, I wasn't a fan per se back then. I was, uh, I was very young. I was still part of the Mickey Mouse and Bugs Bunny crowd. So anytime I was around any older kids, you know, they would want to change it over to wrestling, which would initially make me mad and I wouldn't like it until I got a look at Mr. Wrestling, too, because, you know, much like I think you've talked about in the past, I love Batman and Spider-Man and all the superheroes. So when I see this guy in a mask kicking ass, I'm like, hey, wait a minute, what is this? You know, and part of the culture at the time in Memphis actually I was in West Memphis but you know we got all the all the Memphis television so part of the culture in this part of the country I guess was since we didn't have any sports teams everyone was like all of a sudden with this program Jerry Lawler crazy like all the kids I knew at school were Jerry Lawler Jerry Lawler Jerry Lawler everybody I knew uh, particularly my uncle was the one that would always turn off the cartoons and turn on the wrestling. So Mr. Wrestling 2 was the first one that that actually grabbed me and made me go, you know, this might be pretty cool after all.
0: Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I found that to be uh, very true that a lot of comic fans, uh, there was a lot of crossover appeal there because these were like uh, living, breathing comic book characters uh that you know suddenly were appearing in your in your local arena and, and on local television um and it was really something to see
4: especially with the way Jarrett booked i mean the whole good versus evil thing i mean later on he had it down to a science with Lawler, but i think with this program he was really you know finding finding the way to to, to go with Lawler for the future
0: Right. And, uh, yeah. And, and, th- yeah, the whole thing was, uh, you know, it was fun. It's funny to go back and listen to some of the old WHBQ interviews because initially, uh, Sam Bass does, uh, a lot of the talking. And then slowly but surely, it's, it's Lawler taking command and then maybe passes it to Sam, and Sam just goes, yeah, that's right, Jerry, that's right, and just kind of smiling. Uh, Not only, uh, he has to be very pleased with the way his protege has come along, but that was the plan all along. Uh, Again, it's one of those little details that Jerry Jarrett came up with. You know, he saw the potential in Lawler, knew the star he could be, but knew that he needed a veteran to kind of show him the way and to teach him the, you know, it's one thing to get out there and, and, and do a funny promo or to not stumble over a promo, uh, act like, you know, you're not, you're not nervous. And I think Lawler had that in spades on the Natch, but the, but it's the kind of promos that draw money. And that's the key. And I think that's uh, greatly missing today, uh, essentially because you have, you know, writers, Having, uh, you know, writing scripts for guys uh, who don't really have a wrestling background and the guys had to follow that script verbatim, whereas Lawler was able to go out there and find his own voice.
4: And and I think it's funny that um, uh, during that first decade of Lawler's career that he constantly had a manager, even though he was probably the last person that needed it as far as promos go.
0: Well, yeah, but I, I think, though, that that would also enable, you know, the outside interference and and that yeah. kind of thing. And although I never interfered in any of long matches <laughs> when I later, but, you know, I was strictly his advisor. I was a student of the game. Um, I, you know, I never got into the ring unless I was, you know, unjustifiably yanked into the ring by the likes of like Sid Vicious or The Rock, uh, Flex Cabana. Uh, or even Miss Texas, uh, who I beat by or the way. Brian. Yeah, or Brian, or Brian, or Brian Lawler. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so you were a little late to the party as far as uh, you, you know, you had not been bitten by the wrestling bug, but yet all your friends were sort of Lawler fans. Uh, and even though you were over in West Memphis, uh, it the, it was like it, it was his. It was like Lawler's presence probably, I think, transcended throughout the, the, the Mid-South area uh, is, would that be fair to say?
4: Oh, totally. Totally. I mean, you know, there was, you know, like, like we, like we always say, there was no sports teams, you know, there was, I mean, other than Memphis state, but Lawler just filled a void. I mean, he just uh, stepped up and was, you know, everyone, since he was a hometown guy, I guess everyone could uh, identify with him and, pin any kind of, you know, aspirations or whatever on him and once Jarrett started this uh this storyline started this angle, I think that everyone that followed wrestling thought that Lawler was legitimately going to win the world title.
0: Right. Right. And I and I think that uh, the way the the way that Jarrett would only bring in the champion m- maybe 3 4 times a year made it that much more special it it almost it was the closest that 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 we fans were going to get to a game seven you know what i mean of right of a a playoff game uh and it and it really had that that special energy uh uh in the air um were you able to 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 get to the coliseum much as a kid growing up or, or were you strictly just following it all along on television
4: I didn't start going until a couple of years later. This would have been 81 the first time I went. And um, I vividly remember um, that first time you walk through the doors at the Coliseum. You know those, uh, those like – there's like a row of maybe three double doors that you go into to get to the floor. The very first thing I see – and again, we're going back to guys under masks – I saw the dream machine for the first time. He was another one that when I first saw him, I'm like, here's this guy in a mask. And, you know, he was here all the time, which, you know, wrestling too was just in for the week. But the dream was here, you know, week in, a week out. And not only that, you know, every time he said something, it was awesome. It was like, man, this dude is talking the smack, you know. And I walked in, and I don't know if it was the first match or maybe it was, you know, uh, maybe we had gotten there late. You know, it's been so long I can't exactly remember. And I need to look through one of uh, our mutual friend Mark James's books to figure out exactly what the date is. But it was the Dream Machine in a match with Steve Kern. And this is before the fab. Steve Kern was still clean-shaven. And the one thing I remember is they were um, exchanging uh, – arm bars, like, uh, you know, the Dream was getting the advantage, and Kern was able to really cinch up and reverse it, and I remember when he did it, the Dream Machine just yelled at the top of his lungs, oh, god damn, and, uh, you know, I just thought that was hilarious, you know, I'd never heard, you know, that was, that was some foul language back then, you know, and, you know, for this wrestler to be yelling it like that when he's getting hurt, it's like, man, Kern must be killing him up there.
0: Well, you know that used to be strong language, even uh, for this show. But after Rip Rogers' last few appearances, I think I think anything goes right now.
4: <laughs> so, <laughs> oh, can can you beat me?
0: <laughs> oh my gosh! Uh, so yeah, uh, I believe I believe Kern and Dream Machine were maybe feuding over the uh, the Mid America belt at that at that point. Uh, but man, and he and, that, and he not only had the mystique uh, of wearing the mask, but man, he could rap.
4: Uh, I loved it, man. It was it was like every time, every time he got on the mic, it was like it was one of those moments where it was like, you got to be quiet and listen to this dude, you know? Uh,
0: something tells me that you've at least attempted a Dream Machine impression a time or two. Do you want to give it a go right now?
4: <laughs> I can, but I'm scared it's going to sound too much like Dusty Rhodes. Well, hey, uh, sometimes,
0: sometimes he did a better Dusty. You know, he was always doing a better Dusty than Dusty, if you know what I mean.
4: Okay, I'll try a Dream Machine, but a later Dream Machine, like when um, (laughs) you were managing. You know, his voice was a little bit different by then. You know, Scott Bound, let me tell you something. The Dream Machine, I was just like me. Ah,
5: fuck.
0: Okay.
4: That's yeah. Not like an idiot, yeah. It? yeah uh, note
0: to Brian, last we're gonna have to edit that out. Um, <laughs> but, but it was. Yeah. I, can I, we
4: just cut that whole section out?
0: <laughs> I, I, I just love the, the whole balling, squalling,
4: climbing the wall at hometown. Yeah, Germany. that's it.
0: You know that whole thing. That's what I was trying to think. Yeah. Well,
4: Maybe uh, I'm wound up tighter <laughs> than a Gibson guitar.
0: There you go. There you go. There you go. But uh, you know, it, it, it's great. It's funny too. When Lawler came back from the broken leg in '81 he was in all these personal feuds, and Memphis really got hot. Uh, you know, they drew some initial big crowds. I was there for the big sellout crowd, uh, Lawler Against the Dream Machine, uh, to close out in 1980. And then they moved into 81. Uh, but then, you know, once school got out in uh, in May, that summer— I think they drew more money than at any time in history. Uh, just red, red hot. The personal issue with Lawler, Kern, uh, Mantel, Dundee. And I think the dream had turned baby there for a while. Uh, right. A- against like Sullivan, Ferris, uh, the nightmares, heart lead the way. And they're all, uh, Chick Donovan was in the mix. And, you know, they were doing the whole We Are Family, uh, kind, kind of deal. Um, just, and some of the most entertaining, oh, and Sweet Brown Sugar was, was in the mix there. He had turned heel. He right. Was special referee in the, uh, in a big, in a big, uh, lizardly town match between Lawler, uh, and the dream. So yeah, man, just, that was just a great time. And, and, and so the focus on, on the world championship, was gone for a while. Uh because Jarrett didn't need to didn't need to bring it in. You know, he didn't he didn't right. need it on the card because this was drawing so much money. Um and they actually lasted till uh pretty much the following year. Now they did have an angle with Ric Flair in August of eighty two that appeared to be leading to right. something. Uh, I don't know if at one point, you know, since uh, this was after the, the Andy Kaufman incident, if they were f- maybe thinking of giving Lawler a run with it and then it fell through. But at some point, something happened and Jared instead started bringing in Nick Bockwinkle, uh, who I think was actually probably a better. Uh, he just complimented Lawler's skill set better and was so versatile. I agree. So versatile. Uh, and then the chase was back on uh what what are your uh, what are your memories has of uh, uh, Bockwinkle? and what are your thoughts on his role what was your perception of him as a world champion uh has uh, compared to say Ric flair
4: well by that point i was you know i was in lock stock and barrel like I think the turning point was when Lawler came back from the broken leg. And I don't know if it's just my perception or if it's legitimately how it was, but it seemed like as big as wrestling was before then, it just got bigger in the city. It's like when Jimmy Hart was put in place as his lead heel, it was like, you know, the, the sky was the limit. And as far as Bockwinkel um goes, I was, You know, like I said, I was totally tuned in. I was going to the uh, Mid-South Coliseum on a fairly regular basis. I was actually there one of the nights that um, Bockwinkle came to town. And for me, this was before Cable, by and large, and I'd never even seen Ric Flair. So Nick Bachwinkle was the only world champion I, I knew at that point, like it. I didn't know Flair, you know, I couldn't compare him with Flair because I didn't know who Flair was at that point. I, I apparently missed the morning Flair was in Memphis and um Bachwinkle was all I knew and I I hated him. <laughs> I wanted Lawler to beat him up. I wanted Lawler to, you know, get him you know, I knew Lawler could beat him. I wanted him to take the belt, you know. Yeah. Which was what which was the, the reaction Jarrett wanted out of the audience.
0: Uh, Yeah, I agree. I I think we were also emotionally invested in it uh, because certainly, yeah, we wanted that hometown hero. It's like rooting for your home team to win the pennant. Uh, You know, work their way into the playoffs, maybe win the Super Bowl or make the NBA Finals, or with Memphis State getting to the Final Four. It it really had that same energy uh and and I right. think primarily that had to do with the fact that we didn't we didn't have a pro sports team at the time even though you know Memphis State basketball was was certainly huge uh and Memphis Memphis likes a winner you know and the way Lawler right. was and the way Lawler was positioned and the way he was booked uh resonated with fans but he was also dirty and that almost you know he was the, probably the dirtiest babyface in the ever in in the history of the business who you know what other baby faces going going around routinely throwing fire at his opponents right, right. uh but memphis is a is a, is a is a unique strange town uh, and it's just it's just so you try to explain the connection that lawler had with the fans back then and if you know, you can look back on it if you didn't grow up in the area and look at old tapes and you can see it and you can appreciate it. But I don't know if you, if, if you could fully grasp it.
4: Well, I don't think a lot of scholars and a lot of wrestling historians give Lawler the credit he deserves. You know, like uh, there's Larry Matisick for one, you know, he did a book about the 50 top wrestlers of all time. And he said Lawler doesn't really qualify because he stayed in Memphis his whole career. And I'm like, what difference does that make? He was so popular he didn't have to go anywhere, you know.
0: Well, uh, and, it, it, it to me the, the fact that he didn't, and that he was still able to stay on top and stay relevant and draw that kind of money for so many years is is right. I mean, you know, it depends on how it depends. It depends on your perspective of it. To me, that's that's an achievement. And really, that would have been a goal, I think, of most wrestlers. If they could only, you know, gosh, actually have roots in the town and, of course, you know, part ownership. But if they could stay in one area and not travel around and make the kind of money that that Lawler was making, um, eh, everything. I I can't think of any wrestler who wouldn't have wanted to do that except maybe Ric Flair. <laughs> you know, he seemed to. Uh, he, he, you know, Flair I think was best for, the best the uh, best pick for the NWA champion at the time. Not only because he was he was a he was a I'll stop sort of saying he was a great worker. I think Ric Flair was a good worker, but I, yeah. I, I definitely think Bachwinkle had far more uh, ver- uh, versatility. Uh, the I think Bachwinkle's promos were better. You almost needed a dictionary when Bockwinkle was right. out there giving a promo.
4: but And the thing also is uh, Memphis, you know, during that time when Lawler was so popular, they made several attempts at pro teams. Like they had the soccer team, the Rogues, and they had the indoor football team, the Showboats, with Lex Luger. But, I mean, nothing was going to get over Lawler, it seemed like. You know, it was like that stuff just wasn't going to catch on because, you know, we had Lawler, you know, we didn't need that.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and I know I've said this before, but it, it was a, it was a long running joke. You know, if you, if you wanted a pro sports team to succeed in Memphis, you'd have to have wrestling matches at halftime, Just <laughs> right, 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 right. You know, which is not, not far from the truth.
4: Do you Scott, do you think that the NWA ever considered Letting Lawler hold the belt, even for just like you know a short time. Uh,
0: you know, I don't know if. First of all, you you also have to understand that that I, I don't I, Lawler Lawler really I don't think Lawler wanted it for him for himself as bad as Jerry Jarrett wanted it for him, and and he certainly didn't want it as as badly as we wanted it for him, uh, right? Because we certainly because Lawler had no really really no interest. And traveling, uh, really, and with, you know, when you're the AWA champion, it's a much lighter schedule. I could see him doing that in the heyday of, uh, you know, I wish that he had gotten the title win back in 82 or 83. Um, but, right. uh, you know, it happened a, li- a little, late, but, uh, um, the NWA, uh, schedule would have killed him and he, and he would have wanted no part of it. But th- with the kind of money that they were drawing, uh, and the territory, was so strong. If anybody ever needed that two week or three week rub with it, and it would have been just fine because title change title. You know, that's one thing about Jared that maybe he overdid a little bit. There were so many title changes all the time. So if Lawler had won the world championship and, and dropped it back to, uh, to, to Nick, as he appeared to do in 82 uh, when he won it. And then they had that great finish with Andy Kaufman interfering, you know, right, it, right, you, right. Yeah. Which, if only they had gotten Vern on board to do the title switch, you know, had it actually been a title switch in 82 and then Andy Kaufman interferes and cost Lawler the world championship, they get the publicity that that would have, Gotten, but they, instead they just buried it because it really wasn't a title switch. So The after mags, I think, right. ran ran a, ran a little paragraph about about the title uh, about the they, well. Uh, I say title switch, but the, about the title match. They just said uh, that Dick Bogwinkle recently retained the title, not regained the championship. But the way Memphis positioned it at the time was that Lollard actually won it, and uh, and I think the reasoning was it, they had seen Lollard go after it so many times and lose. That eventually they were going to stop buying into it.
4: And that's kind of what happened at a certain point, isn't it? Yeah,
0: I think so. I I think um, you know, I think in, by the time nope. by the time 86 rolled around, you know, WWF had started to make some inroads in Memphis. Their their first initial shows in 88 and uh late, like, I think late 84 and early 85 were disastrous. Uh but eighty six. They changed their philosophy. They I think they thought they could go anywhere and do uh you know, they used to do this weird thing where they would have a lot of stars on the card, but only like maybe one or two good main events. And then the stars would be separated like it was almost like a TV taping, you know, like the the potential was there if you did the right matchups for a good card. But they, I think they finally realized that wasn't going to fly in Mid-South, you know, Mid-South and it wasn't going to fly in Memphis and a lot of the Southern territories where from top to bottom, for the most part, the card was always really strong.
4: Right, 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 and I don't think WCW did very well when they tried to come to Memphis either. I remember going to a show where Flair and Muda were the main event, and uh, uh, there were barely a thousand people there.
0: Oh man i i went to I went to some cards where I saw, I went to a UWF show. I I'm not even kidding. I think 700 people were there. Six hundred, wow. maybe. It, I mean, it just does that because what you know they, what they do don't realize is. The, the the Memphis wrestling show, and I know, I, I know local wrestling was popular everywhere, but I think especially in Memphis it was an institution with Lance Russell, right, Dave Brown, uh, and and of course Jerry Lawler.
4: Did ICW draw very well in Memphis?
0: They did not. Uh you know, I just had, you know, just had Rip Rogers on the show. Uh they were having uh, shows at the Cook Convention Center. Uh and they were and man and it and, and was that was the closest thing to a Memphis product as you could possibly get because they had these outrageous yeah. angles. Uh it was maybe even too over the top on a consistent basis for Memphis, but man it it's sh- I I watched it religiously. Uh but I
4: never I did too.
0: But I, you know, and I would beg my uncle and uh, my my dad to take me to the wrestling matches, and they and they started in 1979. But I never asked to go to an ICW show as much as I liked it on on TV. <laughs> but you know, my my deal, I w- I was invested in Lawler, Handsome Jimmy Valiant, uh, Bill Dundee. You know, I th- those were my guys. And uh, this other right. this other promotion with their weird shoot interviews that they were going around doing, and, and, and you know, with all these inside terms trying to challenge Lawler and Jarrett to come out and fight him for real, and revealing Tojo Yamamoto's real name on the air, which is which is really kind of bush league. Um, uh, yeah. But half the time, I didn't you know as a, as a kid, I didn't know what
4: the hell they were talking about. I was going to say, I'd imagine half the audience is going, what is he talking about?
0: <laughs> but, uh, yeah, I think you're right. By the time 86 rolled around at Bockwinkle, I think he came in for a defense, and I think it drew about 3,000 people. Uh, that's when Stan Hansen had, had vacated the championship. Uh, right. And uh, it's a shame, because I, I, I really think the best conclusion would have the, – the fitting into the story would have been for Lawler to finally conquer Nick Bockwinkle once and for all, but at that point, you know, I, I didn't, you know, Nick. Nick was, I think, I was, I was stunned to learn that in '82, when he appeared to be in his prime, to me, um, I think he was like 46 or
5: 40.
4: Yeah, something like that.
0: Yeah, I mean, just just absolutely insane that he was in that good of shape and looked uh, looked at least. Uh, I mean, I thought maybe he was like 39 or 40, uh, but uh, yeah. Yeah, but uh, but I think when Kurt Hennig won the the championship, and you you could just see how talented he was, and at that point, I, I, like yourself, I'm sure your appreciation for the business changed. It you know we started to learn a little bit like who was a good worker. And right, right, you know, right. Who could, who could, you know, carry who to a good match? And uh, we really analyze, you know, we started to analyze the storylines a little bit. And I think we all knew that Kurt Hennig was probably legitimately one of the ten best workers uh, in in the world at that point. And so for me, it sort of ignited the 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 uh, the excitement behind the change. Even though the AWA was practically on its last legs and the championship was not what it what it meant usually meant as far as status goes. And I think fans have been conditioned to believe that WWF and uh and NWA WCW World Championships were the world titles. But uh but nonetheless I think fans got into it when when I, I think the first time Hennig defended, uh I was there they did a, uh, a weird DQ finish where Brickhouse Brown was dressed in drag <laughs> and came, and, and, which you know they, they actually tried to have him sit in the audience to have him just blend right in and he would hop out of the crowd but it didn't work <laughs> everyone was like you know they everyone kept pointing they kept moving him around the ringside area and at that point they probably should have called an audible and say hey let's just change the finish and have brick come out uh and you know in street gear but they didn't they had him come in with the dress and the, the whole thing but uh, but that, they drew about uh it's a little over eight thousand people so, uh, so yeah, I think the chase was that that re- that reignited the chase, I think, in a sense, because you had this young, hotshot uh, wrestler like Kurt Hennig holding the title as opposed to Bockwinkle.
4: But in a way, to me personally, I thought it was such a letdown that it wasn't Bockwinkle because they had already built up all that history over you know the past eight years or however long they've been wrestling. And to be honest with you at that time, I just wasn't the biggest AWA fan. And I could tell that uh, Hennig was talented, but I just wasn't engaged with it. You know, I mean, I loved that Lawler won. And I was like, yes, he's a world champion and everything. But I really do think that it would have meant more had it been Bachwinkle.
0: Yeah, well, no, I, I, uh, I mean, if I, if I had my druthers, I, I probably would would agree with you there. But if it was going to be Bach I just think that it should have occurred, eighty four at the latest. You know what I mean? I,
4: right, especially. I, yeah. That. Especially like in 85 when he said, you know, if I don't win the title this year, I'm going to retire. And then he didn't win the title. Well,
0: yeah. Uh, and then I've never, uh, you know,
4: people say different
0: things about that. Uh, there was a working relationship with Crockett. I think it was, it, there had to be, it had to be at least implied that there was a possibility right. that Lawler was going to get the championship or. I think, you know, and Jarrett, and rightfully so. I mean, it did eventually work out. The reason why he started working with Ganya and switched all the affiliation on the titles to, you know, he retained membership in the NWA for the longest time, but uh, changed all the affiliation to AWA uh, championships, yeah. which was never recognized. I, it was funny. I, when I finally started connecting with AWA fans online, I was like, hey, did they ever like talk about the AWA Southern Heavyweight Championship? And they were like, the what? <laughs> 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 because I was like, yeah, well, uh, you know, I was, I was still like, I th- thought I was a smart fan, but I was like, yeah, because, Uh, Lawler went up and won the Southern title from, uh, Jesse Ventura one time. They're like, no, I'm like, oh, right. That must've been a phantom switch. (laughs) Cause Lawler Lawler said that, that Jesse Ventura, uh, something had, he had a personal family emergency and he was supposed to, he was supposed to drop the belt back to Lawler down the road. But, uh, I remember that. Yeah. didn't know when he was going to be able to come back to the area. So, Lawler comes out on TV and said that Ventura was going to defend the Southern champ for, for whatever reason, defend the Southern Championship in Chicago <laughs> against Wahoo McDaniel, and Wahoo McDaniel <laughs> was sick, so they called Lawler in, and he won the championship in Chicago. And for the longest time, I just said, oh, okay, well, that must have been kind of cool, <laughs> but... <laughs> But uh, yeah, it never happened, and uh, the, the the fans the you know the the fans in the Minneapolis area, uh, Chicago they they had no idea that there was an AWA Southern Champion for the most part, or a or a set of AWA uh, Southern Tag Team Champions.
4: Right, right, right. It could've, they could they could have been in that title switch could have happened in uh, Rio de Janeiro for uh, for all we knew. <laughs>
0: Right. Exactly. Exactly. Well, uh, so did you happen to be there the night that uh, Lawler won the championship?
4: I was not. Okay. Well, I uh, had. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Go ahead. I was going to say that um, I went really heavily in 87 and I made a few shows in 88, but. If I remember right, did they raise the ticket prices that night?
0: Yeah, they did. Yeah, and they and they, and they that uh, might have kept me away. Yeah, and they used that uh that whole the golden circle gimmick that Jim Cornett right. was so so fond of. But I I bought the the I didn't I didn't I didn't get in the golden circle. I didn't want to because it was too expensive. Uh but right. I, I think I was in row I think it was like the first three rows of ringside, and I think I was in row four or five. Uh, because when Jerry Jarrett came out and made that announcement, uh, he rarely would point to a show that was coming weeks ahead of time because it would affect the show that was going to happen that week. Uh, but in this case they, they, they did. And just the way Jarrett presented it, I was like, I was smart enough at that point to go, Oh, okay. It's really happening now. Uh, so I immediately went out and and, uh, and got tickets as soon as I could so I could be down there close. And man, even though I have to say, even though the AWA was not what it was, um, I was no longer a young man who believed that this was an actual struggle between two men over the heavyweight championship of the entire world, even though that was gone. It was special for me to see it come full circle because the first one of the first guards I attended uh, was the 1979 uh, title match between Lawler and Buckwick, where they went an hour. Uh, right, right, right. And, and what's interesting about that, Lawler had just turned heel on Dundee, which again is one of those examples of Jerry Jarrett getting the mo- most mileage as he can out of a single date on on the champion because Lawler had gotten overlooked. Uh, Dundee was going to get the title shot. That caused a rift. They had three weeks of like bloody battles to decide who was going to get it. Lawler came out on top. And Lawler was still cheered like crazy for that week only because it was sort of like, God, this guy's an asshole. But damn it, right. he, we think he's the best wrestler in the world, and he's our asshole. <laughs> he's
4: our asshole, right.
0: <laughs> uh, so for me, you know, I, I was able to it was almost like I was able to uh, check my disbelief at the door, at the Coliseum door. I walked in and it was almost like I was, you know, eight or nine years old all over again. Uh, and to see Lawler get that championship and, uh, be carried out of the ring, holding the goat. And, and you know, the blood uh, pouring down his face. I, I I thought it was a, I thought it was a brilliant finish. Other than the slingshot being the, <laughs> the winning move, I, I, which is sort of, uh, it was sort of unique. I, I was, I was thinking that yeah. maybe he was going to slingshot him and then do the fist drop, uh, which, 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 right, know. right, right. But uh, I guess they wanted to do it where it was like, a, almost like to put the issue in doubt that Hennig, had flown over uh, the uh, turnbuckle and hit himself on the ring post yeah. and knocked himself out. So it was almost like it was a fluke, in a way. Yeah. Um, and then you know, and Jeff and Jeff, are, you and I have a mutual friend, Jeff Ledbetter. Yes. And, yes. and it's bugged him for so many years that Jackie Fargo appears to count to four <laughs> on the title switch. But uh, Jim Cornette explained on the Jim Cornette, and I'd never really thought about it this way. Uh, a lot of a lot of referees, especially in the south, and I think Thomas Moreland was maybe the biggest guy who would do this. Because he Thomas Moreland would not referee uh, most of the time, and then suddenly there would be a world right. title match. Actually, and he he refereed that one that I attended for the first time in August of seventy nine. He would count so methodically, <laughs> so slow. And when he would drop to the canvas, he would brace himself with with his right arm. And so the fans sort of thought that was the one. That was the one count. So when he counted yeah. two, uh, they thought that that was a three count. So it was almost like a false finish. And that and, and Cornette is saying that that Fargo was sort of doing that throughout the match, and you just happen to really notice it uh at the pinfall because the crowd seems to pop early when he counts when he's counting two uh but uh or when he counts he counts three but it's actually four uh, is what it appears to be but uh at any rate that's bothered that's bothered Ledbetter for years
4: I figure he would like that because it makes Lawler seem like he held him down for a four count even you know <laughs> that makes him look even stronger
0: it's like kids like King Kong Bundy used to do with the five count.
4: Right, right, right. Give me the five count. Well, let me ask you this, Scott. Were you reading dirt sheets at that time?
0: Yes. Man, I You are? Yeah. I I had I had I had answered an ad. I, I, I think I've explained this on. Do you ever listen to my podcast? I've explained this a few times on the show. <laughs> I,
4: I did, but I can't. I I, I, I I remember you talking about getting into it, but I don't remember if it was this early, like in in eighty seven, is eighty eight. I mean, uh, yeah, I, I didn't know if you had gotten into them
0: that early. Uh, eighty six. Like early okay. early eighty six, I'd I'd started getting and man, I just my head exploded. I I thought it was the greatest thing in the world. Um, at that you know it 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 just made me you know because I'm starting to get old enough because I bought all the wrestling magazines from the time I was like nine, and then I just started to realize that slowly but surely this is all just a bunch of garbage, you know. Well-written garbage, mind you. Yeah, and, yeah, I, should, yeah. I, and I shouldn't say garbage. I, I, I'll say fiction. Uh,
4: fiction, right?
0: Yeah, but for, but I will say, as a kid, for me, it helped fuel the illusion that what was taking place in the ring was real, because you had these you know sports writers uh, that oftentimes would keep up with the local angles, and and to me, I thought they did a damn good job.
4: Yeah. But, well, I was just wondering if the Sheets at that time, were they letting the cat out of the bag about Lawler winning the belt? or I don't think uh,
0: – well, I don't think that Meltzer ever came out and said that this is going to be the switch, but uh, I think he had reported that Hennig uh, was going to WWF, so – if it wasn't going yeah. to be Lawler, it was it was going to be it was going to be happening soon, and so I think I think Meltzer was like about ninety percent sure that it was going to happen. Uh, but I thought, and again, getting back to that finish, the fact that that you know Lawler's given it all, but the but the blood stoppage, you know, because Lawler hit a gusher, and you have Jackie Fargo, yeah. uh, who's kind of like a father figure. I remember thinking, oh man because i was so sure that he was going that you know with Henick having signed going to WWF um or i you know what i don't even think he had signed but i think he had he he was close to signing because i think he hung because he, he was a, he hung around for a little bit after he lost to, to Lawler but i think uh i think Meltzer was saying that he was, it was all, it was all but a done deal, right? Uh, so right, I right. was, I was pretty sure that Lawler was going to walk out with it. But, the, the, but again, it, it just, it just goes to show you that they knew that one way to build drama around this, because they were practically guaranteeing that Lawler was going to win the belt, if he gets a bad cut and the match has to stop, and with, and with Fargo in there, you know, this is like his, you know, Fargo's looking at Lawler like his son, you know, is yeah. he going to, is he going to do the right thing and, and step in, uh, and you know, what's more important the world championship or his eyesight for a brief moment, I was thinking, Oh my gosh, they're gonna, he's going to stop it. And so when Lawler comes out and nails him with that, and then it's, hits the, uh, and I love, man, when Lawler nails that punch, he, yeah. uh, he just, He he, he, easily the best punch in wrestling, but I love the way that that one just comes out of nowhere. Hennig's pounding him, pounding him. Lawler just kind of staggers back and pops out of that corner and nails him. And the crowd just went ballistic. and Lance
4: Lance Russell goes, "Look
0: at this guy with this amazing stamina!" (laughs) Oh man! Yeah,
4: I like the way I like the way the promotion would kind of tease you like that with the blood, like you're thinking, man they're going to have to stop the match, you know, because they weren't expecting this. I kind of felt the same way when uh, Austin Idol said he would pay everyone's uh, admission back if he lost the the cage match, because there's no way on earth Lawler's going to get his head shaved, right?
0: Well, yeah, that was the, that was the thinking, you know, I think every fan or most fans who went there just couldn't imagine Lawler losing. I mean, he had never lost one before. Uh, so I think everyone. They, I think that added to the intensity of it. You know, not only did they want, to, right, right, not right. only were flan, fan, fans climbing the cage to get into the ring to you know to save Lawler uh, from a haircut, but they were also pissed off because they thought they were getting their money back.
4: Were you there that
0: night? Yes, I was. Yeah, I was I, too. <laughs> were you Were you there? And man, and, yeah. and, and man, no matter if there was a hot finish. Or not. Memphis fans usually would head toward the exits. Uh, right, right, right. Many did not, and they, wait, you know, they had to wait thirty minutes for the heels to exit the cage. And even then, you know, they were starting to converge. Uh, man, and when they were when they were shaving Lawler's head, I had a, had a, my dad's Pentax camera, and you could, and I am pushed right up against the cage because fans are just converging on the area, and I'm thinking, oh my god, I'm going to get crushed to death. Uh, boy, what a what a terrible night this is. My hero is getting his head shaved, <laughs> and then Tried. I'm gonna I'm, I'm gonna get crushed against the very cage uh, that he's trapped in. Ugh but did, uh, what, what did you was,
4: get any pictures?
0: I did. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I actually I posted that one. That it's not the best picture because my, my lens is 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 pressed right against the cage. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> uh. What and what was your reaction to that finish?
4: I, I I was with my girlfriend, so my attention was kind of diverted. But, of course, once the finish happens, I'm I'm telling her, I'm like, I don't believe this. They're going to shave his head. And I was up in, we were up in the cheap seats. You know, I never I never sprung for the for the floor. We were usually way up and um, even up there. You know, normally I would sit up there a lot just because, you know, just because it was fun up there. But um, usually people were just, you know, just hanging around watching and you weren't getting really the hot reactions way up there as you were the closer you got to the ring. But that night, people around us, they were just in disbelief and everybody was yelling and cursing and going, I don't believe this. I don't believe this. And I'm like, man, I was. My girlfriend, of course, she didn't care one way or the other, but, um, it was total shock. It was like, you know, like we said, there's no way Lawler's going to get his head shaved.
0: Yeah. And I think, I think that speaks to the aura of the King and the way that Jarrett booked him wisely for so many years. And one thing that I think too, that, That helped uh, Lawler that this is one thing, too, that I don't think a lot of top baby faces like Dusty Rhodes and some others who ruled these local areas understood, you know, Lawler stumbled quite a bit. You know, he did a lot of. Yeah. Not not always clean jobs for for guys coming in, uh, but he you know, he was probably pinned by more guys coming into the area than any top local baby face in the country. But I think he realized that, that in a weird way that that endeared him more to the Memphis fans. It was, you know, if, if your hero always won, where's the excitement in that? But if he's got a challenge and he, it's kind of like when your when your favorite football team loses, you know, a, a big game, you're, you know, you hurt. And I think Lawler understood that as a sports fan, especially being a fan of Cleveland (laughs) for so many years that, you know, when when they lose and the team hurts, he hurts. And so I think he understood that, that psychology of it. Um, And it made him more of a, uh, a, of a guy that we could identify with because, you know, we all, we all stumble in life and we all, but we have to dust ourselves off and, and, and get back up. And I think that, 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 you know, that's one reason why Lawler was able to stay on top for so long.
4: I think he had that uh, – a lot of times he had that underdog quality because, you know, I remember they would bring in somebody like Kim Patera, and I'm like, there's no way Lawler's going to be able to beat that guy, you know, because he just looked like a massive Hulk, you know. But then you get caught up in the match, and as soon as he pulls that strap, you're like, well, the match is over now, you know, he's winning.
0: Yeah, and yeah, uh, and and I've tried to explain too to people the crowd noise when Lawler would pop that strap. Uh, yeah, um, just incredible. And then every time he punched a guy after he pulled the strap, the crowd would boom, boom, yeah, boom, and it's just like in chorus. And it was just, it was almost like a European soccer match or something. You know, the way they would chant in unison. Uh, it was, it was really powerful and it had to be an exhilarating feeling, uh, to, to be the king. Uh, you know, no wonder Lawler messed around with, uh, you know, never messed around with, uh, with, uh, drink, uh, and drugs because that had to be the ultimate high, just being the king.
4: Have to get goosebumps in the ring when people are just cheering for you like that. Ugh.
0: Uh well hey David listen I really appreciate you joining us here today and you know just I it's one thing for me to talk about it uh but I always like to hear from from other fans in the area to explain just how over Lawler was and just how important it was for us to see him finally get that World Heavyweight Championship. And uh, even though we, I think we both wish it had come sooner, the fact that uh, he did get something later in his career. And I even started, I'd stopped buying the wrestling magazines. I started buying the after mags again because he was in the top 10 of the, uh, in, in the world. And I finally got to see Jerry Lawler as world champion in the ratings in the after mags. And that's something that right. I'd, been, I'd been wanting since I started buying them. So it was all kind of cool.
4: Even though, like you said, it came late, it was uh, it was really cool seeing him finally ascend to the world championship. And, Scott, it's been fun talking about this. And I've always said that even though Memphis didn't have any professional sports teams, I think we had the best wrestling in the world.
0: Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think we had uh, – I think that made us really, in a way, the best fans, too, because I think maybe perhaps we were the most emotionally invested in our local wrestlers.
4: Definitely. Cool.
0: Well, hey, David. Well, let, we'd love to have you on again sometime. Uh, thanks for joining us. I could, I man. I could, I could do this for a couple more hours, but uh, unfortunately, I know. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, we'll talk again soon.
4: Okay, man. Thanks a lot. All right,
0: thanks, David.
6: Well, Lance, you've asked me how it feels to be the world heavyweight champion and that's a very good question i can tell you that so far it's been very hectic uh... and i guess that's why i'm here today by myself for a little while to uh... get away from the hustle and bustle and try to answer that question for myself Uh, all i can say that right now is it's a great feeling uh... it's it's a realization of a dream that's it's lasted almost ten years that's how long it's been since i first started wrestling and i guess at first you know i just i just wanted to be a wrestler and i was content with that happy just to go in the ring and and get to wrestle and then after a, after a few years i started really i started really wanting to attain the goal because you see I think it's only natural for somebody, no matter what he does, whether he drives a truck or he's a doctor or a lawyer or a wrestler, I think it's something deep down inside of each individual that makes you want to be, or at least strive to be, the best that you can possibly be. And in professional wrestling, the world heavyweight champion epitomizes that. So after I'd been wrestling for four or five years, I, I... set that as my goal and I think all the people around here realize that. And I didn't think for one minute at that time that it would be such a long road and so many trials and tribulations ar- along the way, so many frustrations and disappointments. Because I guess I guess the most disappointing thing that can happen to anybody is to almost attain a goal and then not quite get there, come so close, but yet so far. And I, I had that happen to me, not once, but as you know, many, many times. And then to finally, to finally reach that goal, even I, I'll admit that, that many times there were there were times that I, I I didn't think I would ever get there. And then for it to finally happen, it's something that it's. It's really hard to put into words. It's just a great feeling, uh, a dream come true, and and uh, I just you know I I feel like I owe it to especially the fans there to share it with them. And there's some other people that, that uh, at the same time when I'm as happy as you know as you can possibly be, there are some other people that I wish were here to share it with me. And that's I think back on Sam Bass and and my father who aren't here anymore but i know how happy they would be at this time also but i want to i want to say that uh... with all the hard work that it's that it's taken i know in my heart that i would have never made it without the support of the fans and i want to thank them now And i just hope that that uh... this can make them a little bit happy for me because in that Coliseum to have over 10,000 people, knowing that they were sitting there behind me. And there were times in that match then, uh, that I could have given up, but knowing that I would not only let that dream move further away from me, but I'd be letting down those over 10,000 people in the, and a lot more than that sitting at home that uh, it makes you go on, reach back and get that little bit extra. And I was able to, able to win it. And all I can say is uh, it's a great feeling. Nick Bockwinkle was a great champion, and I just hope that that I can go on to be a great champion. I don't know how long it'll last. I hope it lasts a long, long time. But I can just say I'm going to do the very best that I possibly can, and I want to thank each and every one of you people out there for being behind me for all these years. Lance, other than that, it's just a great feeling. Thank you.
0: Our next guest also brings a unique perspective because he was not only a big fan of Jerry Lawler, but he was also his son. And he's here to discuss with us what it was like to be the son of the king, the prince, I guess, of Memphis wrestling. And It wasn't as cool as you might think. you got to remember that, yes, Jerry Lawler was one of the most popular figures in wrestling most of the time. But when Kevin was in kindergarten, his dad was one of the most vicious heels in the business. And that made it tough to be Kevin Lawler at that time. I asked Kevin, you didn't get to see your dad much because he was on the road. But how often did you did you get to go to the Mid-South Coliseum, and was that sort of the way that you established and maintained a relationship with your dad by going to the matches every week? And this is what he had to say.
5: You know, I used to get to go, you know, almost every week pretty regular up until, um, you know, the time that I wanted to go, you know, to see like a WCW show, and then I got pretty much kind of grounded and wasn't allowed to, to go to any more Memphis shows. Um, but no, I mean, I mean, I, we we would there was um, gosh, I mean, for the most part, we would go almost, you know, every every week and, and everything. But I just I remember like, man, it just like kind of during that, you know, there was sort of like that one time period where man, I just hated it so much that I just I didn't even go. You know, it was like during that, you know, that late and mid '80s, you know, kind of after you know Jeff and all them started. Really after that, man, during like that whole. Still stable, catch Jack Gary Young kind of a days, man. I just I just hated it, and just really I spent a lot more money nights sitting home watching like Kate and Alley, and you know stuff like that than I did, <laughs> uh, you know, Wonder Years and things like that than I did, uh, you yeah, know, going to the concert back then. But you know, but there was like just different different levels and different stages of it, you know, where a lot of times it would be, um you know, like Randy Hills, you know, kind of like when he was first kind of hanging around and. And uh getting involved and doing doing stuff, you know, in his early days, you know, just kinda of one of his duties would be to come and pick, you know, my brother and I up from from home and you know, take us to the matches and bring us back and things like that, you know. Did, um did,
0: did did he often get lost finding his way to the arena?
5: Oh no, believe me, he he knew how to get there, you know, with with his eyes closed, you know, that was one thing. That <laughs> really if nothing else, he at least he knew how to how to get to the costume.
0: And, and and what did you, boy to be a fly on the wall? What were the conversations? What, what were the conversations like with Randy Hales going to the matches when uh, you were
5: you were younger? Gosh, um, I honestly really don't remember what those conversations were like. Um, you know, because I mean, you know, we were you know teenagers or, or preteens, you know, back then. And just didn't really know Randy, you know, on the level that we know him on on now. So, um, and I'm sure back then he probably was, you know, trying to, you know, go out of his way to, you know, to you know, thinking that oh my, these are Wallace kids, I've got to really, you know, be on p's and q's with these guys, or maybe I'll get in trouble, to get fired, or something like that, you know. So yeah, because because um, you, you
0: two, you you guys were a couple of brats.
2: <laughs> <laughs>
0: Brian? Yeah, you, you you probably you'd probably stooge anybody off who was rude to you if it was the popcorn guy or the security guy or uh, your driver Randy Hales. Uh, yeah. <laughs> uh, like if he wouldn't stop at McDonald's on the way, would? We,
5: we... <laughs> well, there 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 was a little nasty because I, I learned early on that that my dad would would always shoot the messenger, so you know it wasn't it never really worked in our favor. To, Try to stooge anybody off or do anything because it would always backfire. Because there was a particular time that it wasn't Randy, but there was another guy that would take us and pick us up, and I did want him to uh, stop at Dallas $1, one time so I could get some French fries, and um, and he told on me, and I got in trouble for that. So. <laughs> so we never oh and and uh, the
0: the king did he uh, did he pull the strap?
5: No, but that kind of reminds me of the time that that you and I was coming home from Porter Gym or like our first wrestling event. I tried to get you to stop at McDonald's and 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 get me something and and you feel fit about it too and and um I don't think I don't think would let me get any uh any fries with my order that night
0: wait well, I don't wait a minute you remember that
5: yeah you don't
0: no what? I remember that, I remember no, I, that. Good. well you you <laughs> hang on to grudges don't you <laughs> Jesus you know it has to be something with the way you're asking, uh, you know, you, I don't know who this other individual was, but, uh, if I refuse to stop and get you French fries, it
5: must be, must be something to do with, uh, you were, you were probably, telling- well, I know we, I know we actually, I know we actually stopped and ate, but, but, um, I don't think I really had any money at the time or, or something. And, uh, I, we must not get paid tonight for that wrestling show. <laughs> yeah. Money. Yeah. Um, but, um, I just remembered, um, you know, for whatever reason, I guess you was the only one that had any money and was kind of springing for some stuff, but was being really cheap and like, you know, it was real skimpy on like, well, yeah, so was cause good I, 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 yeah I,
0: I was, I was the <laughs> only one with money because I was the only one working. <laughs> <Jeez>. <laughs> yeah, funny, funny how, funny how that worked. But, uh, anyway, and, and I remember Kevin, you know, when, when you and I, first, we were introduced by a mutual friend, uh, a guy by the name of Brian Bass, who the name isn't, Popped into my into my mind in a in a very long time, uh, and you and I immediately hit it off. and And I remember going to your house to watch a I think it was a WCW pay per view. And I'm I'm you know I've been reading the Observer for for a few years and thought I was really smart and all this. And I'm kind of picking apart the show and I'm like going Ah, oh, that guy should be the. Okay, maybe I was talking about Pillman. I was like, "Yeah, the guy's got such a potential to be one of the biggest baby faces in the country," and they're just blowing it. And you, and maybe your brother or somebody, looked at me like, "What's a baby face?" And I was like, "What? Uh, good guy?" As you I mean, I just assumed being the son of the king that maybe he has smartened you up. Uh, at at a, and you were, gosh, you were you were at, uh, you must have been sixteen.
5: <laughs> um well no i mean we really weren't um hanging around on that level at that at that point i mean it really wasn't until you know gosh i mean probably like around like 1990 or something you know when um you know when my brother and tony you know kind of first came in and started doing the new kids and we we're actually even the twilight zone thing before that you know it was when we were kind of old enough to start kind of coming in and hanging around and and even back then it was still a, like a real case a type situation the way that they would just kind of even at the t v you know they would split up the you know the job guys and the regular guys and baby faces and heels and things like that so it was it was even still a pretty strict you know environment then but we weren't um you know um you know prior to that really ever um exposed to anything um i mean even like on a Monday night when we would go down to the call and you know, and, and, and hang out. And, and sometimes like during intermission or something like go in the back. I mean, it was just like, you know, how, how it was during the days when, when we were working and stuff down there, it was like, you know, it, it was, everybody was just walking around socializing. But prior to that, man, you'd go in the back and you wouldn't hardly see anybody or like, you know, like, like a meal or somebody might would kind of barely pick their head around the corner. If they saw, you know, saw us talking to my dad or something, they'd, you know, I mean, everybody kayfabe, you know, so like they would think, oh, well, hey, there's a lawyer stand there. I can't just come come out, you know, so I have to kind of creep creep back to the back or or whatever. So, you know, it was just it was just a lot a lot tighter and a lot stricter, you know, back then.
0: And, and were you like were, were you sort of looking around and wondering who is this kayfabe woman that everyone keeps screaming for?
5: Um, no, but you know how like just in classic um. You know, classic history, I guess. You know, my dad's pretty much every girl he's ever met or dated. You know, he he's put them on TV some kind of way. You know, whether it's Renee or Stacy or Paula or whoever. Um, but even even my mother apparently like way way long time. You know, my mother's name is is um her maiden name was Kay like K Y K McPherson. I mean Kay Williams. Kay uh, McPherson is her her current married name now anyway, so apparently at one time, gosh, way back, maybe when they was in Atlanta or on Channel 13 or something, apparently my mother actually appeared on TV as K-Fabe.
0: Oh, come on now. (laughs) Seriously. (laughs) You're literally k me. (laughs) (laughs) I'm literally a product of K-Fabe, I guess you could say. Well, yeah, I know that you were a secret that your dad probably liked to keep under wraps for the most part of his career, but uh, but nonetheless, the, the the cat is out of the bag now. Uh, it, I can't imagine like the scenario where where uh, she would have been introduced as K on the air, but I don't knowing Memphis TV, I, I, I don't doubt it. All right, <laughs> uh, and I remember you telling me uh, because you know you. Uh, weren't smartened up, uh, you were like, uh, you know, a lot of us, uh, we would, would react. Uh, we were so emotionally invested in your dad. You know, he was the hometown hero, the home, the home team, so to speak. Uh, you know, Memphis state basketball, certainly very big, but other than that, we didn't really have a lot to cheer for. And honestly, I think if I had grown up somewhere else, Maybe I wouldn't have uh, been a big wrestling fan, but for some reason I think a lot of it had to do with the fact that your dad was from Memphis and and often talked about that and and really for the longest time was build has not the, not necessarily the king of wrestling, but it was always the king of Memphis, and then eventually it it uh, kind of evolved into that. so it really felt like uh, like he was like he was our hero and I'm sure uh, has his son that he he must have been uh, larger than life to you.
5: Well, I mean, I mean, he was, and it was, and it was. I guess it was, you know, you know, kind of on two different levels in a way, because you know, already usually, like, you know, your father is already all, you know, regardless of who he is or what he does, is always kind of a larger-than-life, you know, hero, probably to most kids and things like that. Especially even when you know, because my mother and father got divorced when I was like four years old, so you know. And especially in a situation like that, you're already going to see your your father even less than you you know would on a normal basis anyway. So so in those cases, I think it always would always make um you know like a child's father or whoever in in, in a situation of a divorce you know seem even more special because the time that you got to see him or spend with him you know was was a lot less than a normal situation. Uh, but then also at the same time, yeah, you take into the uh, to the equation that, you know, uh, I mean, aside from just the fact that he was my dad. I mean, I still probably experienced him the same way that pretty much every other kid in, in, in town did, you know, um, just, you know, see him as this, as this guy or this character on, on TV. So in a way, I guess he kind of played like dual roles in my life, you know, one is, as that guy. And then one also as, as, as a father. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I guess it was an interesting um, dynamic. But also, real quick, I wanted to say, um, I think you know when you talked him earlier about probably one of the reasons that, that you know, you know, he was over so strongly with the people was because of the fact that you mentioned that there was you know we didn't have a any kind of a major league team whether it was you know football or basketball or baseball or whatever the case. But I think also just like a lot of things in the wrestling business, it all had to do with just the timing. If you think about it, like right around the same time that he really kind of started to catch on, was was you know right around that same time that Elvis had died. So I think you know during the time it was when there was you know you don't have cable, you don't have all this stuff. Everything is such such a limited environment. I think the people of Memphis was just you know because of because of like losing who at the time was the hometown hero Elvis. I think they kind of like like needed a replacement i think you know him kind of getting hot right around that same time i i think that will also kind of play a factor into the timing of it like wow okay hey you know here's you know the people in memphis are just you know kind of need to fill this void you know with with the big hero elvis you know passing away and um and he just happened to kind of be you know the the next kind of guy in line with with you know a lot of tv time and some charisma and some personality that I think was over kind of you know I definitely think it would be safe to say that he kind of you know picked up you know off of some of that you know some of that loss there
0: well and not only that but his incredible singing ability
5: well yeah and that was another thing you know that he you know there was also there was also a big void left there you know when Elvis died with you know without you know some current you know music and content coming out so he definitely stepped into that role that role too with you know, classic songs like Bad News and, and Wrestling with Girls and Wetbusters Busters and, you know, things like that.
0: Uh, and Kevin, I know you well enough to know that you're being sarcastic there, but uh, I, I don't, <laughs> I think a lot of, maybe, just so people are, are clear, Kevin does not really think that those are. Or maybe he does. I I don't know. Uh, but uh, I think I think that was uh, Kevin speaking in jest, uh, and I certainly was. Although I mean, your dad was just a hell of an entertainer all, all the way around, and 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 actually did put out some great novelty records i mean he had the great producer jim dickinson who's like a memphis legend uh helping him out i think uh the guys at arden who helped produce big stars albums uh you know three of all three big star albums are on the Rolling stones list of uh top 500 albums of all time so uh clearly he had some help with jimmy hart certainly uh helped your dad uh, produce slick records that uh that sounded pretty good and they were and they were pretty funny and uh, but I,
5: I will who was say, behind? Them? What, at one time, wasn't there like a lot? Wasn't there like Barbarian Records? Like who was behind that? Because I remember uh, there Blake. was always like a, like you know, it was obviously my dad like did the artwork of the of the there's some kind of a you know some kind of a barbarian type face and the word barbarian written and you know the way that my dad would do art stuff like that. It always seemed like there was like yeah, some like well, Barbarian Records. Yeah,
0: I thought that was Jim Blake.
5: Probably, I mean, probably yeah. so. And and for those, the, the, yeah, Jim, the original Dr. Frank.
0: Yeah, the original doctor. Yeah, he was in the getup uh, as Dr. Frank, and when when Jerry wheeled him out, and then I think there was a bomb scare. That day, and they had to evacuate, and they, <laughs> and they forgot that he was inside the box, so he was just right. he was just left there. Oh my gosh, can you imagine if, if poor old Jim Blake had suffocated in, in that box <laughs> in the uh in the Doctor Frank mask? I uh, mean, maybe, maybe they would have.
5: Well, you know, it, it's hard enough to breathe in one of them masks by themselves, but then you know you take one of those masks on and you're inside a box it's <laughs> like a double whammy
0: yeah and they would have had to uh they would have had to breed life back into dr frank <laughs> so it really would have been a, a more authentic gimmick
5: um but it hey, <laughs> could you imagine though like how much more over the dr frank character would have been if there was in fact a bomb and it somehow went off but but he survived the thing and they like went over and like found through the rubble that there was like this dr frank gas still alive in a box after the after a bomb went off in the studio
0: uh you know what I think this conversation has really taken a, a turn for the worse here. but uh, uh and what's also ironic is that that uh, that was also the same day so you had Dr. Frank debuting the bomb scare and also that was the day that batman adam west was in the audience so i could only imagine that if there were a bomb on site that batman certainly took care of it because you know remember the uh the opening and the uh the batman movie yeah you know, hey, he's running around with the bomb. Bomb. <laughs> exactly <laughs> so uh yeah kudos to to adam west for for saving the day and unwittingly Saving the uh, the life of uh, well the extended life of of Doctor Frank, uh, but uh, yeah, I kind of wish that gimmick uh, had died on the spot right then. But let's get back to well, you know, and to your point uh, about uh, Elvis Presley dying, uh, yeah, that that was certainly a, a big deal. Uh, but, you know, but your dad really started getting hot in '74, and that was passed away in '77. Uh, now, but certainly I think that that helped take him to the next level because the, you know, the whole idea behind the quest for the title program that Jerry Jarrett pointed out that eventually led to your dad winning the world championship in '88, um, was designed not only to get Jerry over, it's, to get the fans stop thinking of him as a tag team wrestler and start thinking of him as a legit contender for the world championship and somebody who could, who had a good chance of beating Jack Briscoe. And so, you know, was it was able to but the the end result in mind and in, in Jarrett's mind was that at the end of it, the fans would be so uh, almost proud that this hometown guy, even though they they hated him for the most part and kind of brash and cocky and full of himself. But he was backing up what he said and he even got a pin on Jack Briscoe, after hitting him with a chain, A little small detail there, and the decision was reversed. But he got a taste of the world championship, and so the timing was right to switch him uh, month, a couple of months down the road after the uh, the initial bout with Briscoe, and they did. Um, and he, you know, and he was successful ha- as a babyface. But uh, we've talked about it. We've played some rare WHBQ audio, and he's almost. It's almost like he he has an idea of what a baby face is supposed to be. I think I think the natural heel arrogance is more in line with your dad's sense of humor. Uh but he was, he was almost imitating Dusty Rhodes a little bit. Like, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, kept, kept talking, not, w- but without the list, but, but he was, he kept talking about my people and we're going to get a caravan and we're going to go to Dronesboro tonight and just, you know, all this kind of stuff that it doesn't even sound like a, jury, like a Jerry Lawler interview. And I think he, he, then he had a falling out with Jarrett, uh, at the end of 74 and into, in early 75 and was, uh, sent to Alabama and then Florida uh and then returned later that summer at kind of the triumphant return of the white knight uh even more white i think at his first ma- match back with the seemingly unbeatable mongolian stomper and i think that was the start of him really having a good run uh as a ho- as a hometown hero um and, and then after uh, after elvis said you know your dad was such a hot heel in that summer of 77. And that's when I got into it. You know, the whole feud with Bill Dundee D was just riveting entertainment. And your dad was probably at that point doing the best heel promos in the business, but it was almost like the, it was, it was that time again, you know, the fans were loving your dad's interviews because they were so entertaining, even though they hated him, they wanted to like him again. And then the timing of it with Elvis passing you know, they did the deal where your dad retired supposedly to to pursue a career in music, and he had he even said in his interview that he was retiring because the death of Elvis showed him that life is life is short, and you can't spend your life being an entertainer pleasing other people. You have to please yourself, Um, and then of course, you know, during one of his first concerts with the gentries. He was attacked by the Samoans and handsome Jimmy and switched back babyface. And then from that point on, you know, was really hot as a, as, as a baby face all over again. So yeah, definitely. I think uh, as far, you know, your, your dead star was big in 74 and 75 and 76. And then I think after Elvis died, it just took him to another level as, as the baby face
5: uh, hero. Yeah, and that's what I was saying. I and I think it was just like like I said. I think it was a lot of it had to do with the fact that just the the people in in Memphis, you know, um man, just just needed the needed a replacement. They needed to fill, fill that that void. And and you know, without any other kind of you know, like I said, without us not having any kind of major league stuff going on, there really just wouldn't be anybody else in in the field, Memphis, you know, to to step into any kind of a role you know, like that. And, um, and, and he was probably like the next closest, you know, thing, you know, with, with wrestling being so, um, so much of a, of a, of a showbiz type thing. You actually would think that, that Bill Dundee probably would have, um, got that spot, you know, since he dressed, you know, a lot like Elvis and everything, but, um, it didn't turn out that way. <laughs>
0: <laughs> yeah, your dad always pointed out that he looked like uh, a, a, a midget Elvis impersonator or something like that. But uh, <laughs> but Dundee, you know hell, I, I, I joke about Bill uh, sometimes uh, on the podcast, kind of give him a hard time because he and I exactly didn't see eye to eye when I was in the business. But I I do without a doubt respect. Well, that's because that's because that's because you was the tallest <laughs> manager to ever. Come around. Yeah, you think that was it? You think? <laughs> he had a short man's complex because I, I was. It uh, <laughs> could be. Could be. I don't know. Maybe he always thought I was looking down on him, uh, literally and figuratively. I don't know, but uh, but I do respect the hell out of out of Dundee's ability. Uh, I mean, not only in the ring, uh, but also uh, as a booker. Um, now, granted, he did a lot of the same stuff that Jerry Jarrett did when he went to Mid South, but nevertheless, he he helped turn that territory around and, and do record business. So, a lot of respect from Bill Dundee on my end, even though I do joke about him occasionally. Um, and I'm sure being being the son of the king had its had its highs and lows as far as uh, popularity and and the way you were treated at school. Uh, do you remember it being a little different when when say he was a heel i mean did did you ca-
5: catch yeah do <laughs> yeah as a matter of fact i remember i remember being in, in kindergarten and i i guess I wasn't aware of the, that the fact until like maybe later on in life that that must have been the time frame when my dad was you know the biggest the biggest heel in town but I, I remember being in kindergarten and for whatever reason me my my teacher would Send me to the office like literally like almost every single day to get paddling and, and 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 you know and um or she would be you know giving me bad reports or or you know i was, I was just always in trouble like man you know in, in kindergarten like man like what what could you really do in kindergarten to deserve to go to the office and get paddled like you know five days a week you know um you know and i had this i had this teacher that was just really really like mean to me um, you know, back then, and then I kind of like thought later in life. I was like, man, you know what? I wonder if maybe it's because like my dad like was this, just big heel on TV, and maybe she just, you know, was a big wrestling fan and hated him and <laughs> took it out on me or something like that. But I just remember like being, you know, Lily would like like seriously was in trouble every single day and would go to the principal's office and have to get paddled at, in kindergarten, and and um you know never really did anything just any extreme, you know, the, you know, it wasn't like I was just like a, you know, problem child and stuff, stuff like that, you know, um, especially on that level, you know, but then just kind of thought later in life, he's like, you know, what? I wonder if maybe that was the reason, you know, for it.
0: Yeah. So your dad's like, uh, the main event star using all these foreign objects to win. And then his poor son has to go to school and get hit with a
5: foreign object. Uh, a... Yeah, and then like you were saying that, and, and you know, we're talking about like the good and bad version of that. But then later on, when I was like in in high school, um, like one of the ladies that worked in the like in the in the office, you know, was a huge big time, just your typical stereotypical, you know, type wrestling fan, you know, just just you know, just um, you know, just one of those real goofy looking Mark types, you know and huge wrestling fan. And man, I I could get her to change my grades. You know, I, I, I could have like a D or F and take my report card to her and be like, Hey, can you, can you switch this? Or I'm not going to be able to go, I'm not going to be able to go to wrestling this week. And, and, and probably not going to be able to get you any, uh, any autographs or anything. And so she would, you know, she would change my grades for me, <laughs> you know? So that was, I guess, you know, how it could, you know, sometimes work against you and then work for you.
0: That's no, that's no way to go through life, son. <laughs> <laughs> now, alright, tell the truth, do you think being the son of the king did it did it ever help you get laid?
5: Um yeah, but again, that would be probably a situation where it would backfire because, you know, the girls would be more than Willing to do it, but they would want to get paid afterwards because they thought that because that was my dad that I'd have all this money, you know. So yeah, they was they was easy to go, but then when it was over with, they they expected a payoff. <laughs> 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 and that's one thing too that that um, uh, you know. And, hey, let me tell you. when, it, hey, when it, let me tell you this when it, when it comes to when it comes to that with women, they ain't going for the the forty dollar Memphis payoff either.
0: Uh, well,
5: <laughs>
0: yeah, uh, and I'm sure, and, and, and given the fact they had to work with you, they had to work a lot harder than, than maybe <laughs> some of the boys did. Uh, uh, once again, we,
5: we yeah, cause I, 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 I made sure that they bumped and sold. So, yeah, they. they, oh they, they had a, boy!
0: They had oh boy! <laughs> Holy cow! Anyway, getting back to uh, the 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 topic at at hand, uh yeah, but you know uh, it's my understanding though that you always wanted to go straight to the finish <laughs> 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 but, okay, anyway, uh back to uh, being a now we're uh, you know you're the the you know your dad would always get bogged down in these personal feuds, and that was the big money maker in Memphis, but a lot of times these personal issues would start. Uh, from, from the world champion coming into town, they would get so much mileage out of, of an upcoming title defense. Friends would turn on each other, like your dad with Dundee in 79. And, um, gosh, uh, the, the big angle with, uh, I think a lot of this is forgotten, but the, but the last great Memphis angle and program that, that really drew a lot of money was, uh, Austin Idol and Tommy Rich against your dad, which ultimately led to the head shaving, which was one of the greatest, wrestling angles uh, ever executed in my opinion uh but that whole issue started over nick bockwinkle coming to town for a title defense and first tommy rich getting upset about it and then uh also, and then idol idol actually came in i was there the night because i you know only got to go to wrestling five times a year and i usually waited for that for that world champion appearance to come in because that's yeah, I, you know, I I I would get caught up in the six man tags and the ter- Texas tornado death matches and all that kind of stuff. I'd get caught up in the gimmicks too, but but I just loved the the thrill of uh, the chase for the world title. And so I saw a lot of Bachwinkle matches uh, with with Lawler, even though you
5: said you only you only got to go five times a year. Yeah, I mean, yeah, dude. I mean, my my parents. My well, parent... What was the deal with, like with like like who would take you? Roughhouse Fargo or something? Is yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. Like five times a year? <laughs>
0: Yeah. I was only brought in uh, to spark attendance. Uh, my uh, my my dad just wasn't a big fan of it, and I think you know that was one thing that that made it harder for Jared. You know, you look at some of the the TV in like eighty two and eighty three, and it was so strong, and they and they drew great crowds, but the sellouts stopped for the most part. I mean, they you know they would have a few. But and they they were still and I think week to week, the numbers overall were better. But I think it was getting harder in a sense because so many people were moving to the suburbs, you know, and they didn't they didn't want to. And the fairgrounds area was becoming a little bit more dangerous than than maybe it had been in the past. And um, gosh, you know, the first couple of times my my poor Uncle Robert uh, took me, uh, he was kind of like, you know, he was kind of the cool uncle. You know, no one else would take me to the matches, but he would. And initially we tried sitting up in the cheap, in the cheap seats, general admission, $3. Uh, but that didn't last long, uh, you know, because gosh, there were so many, uh, drunks and derelicts and pe- people throwing whiskey bottles and. Uh, just and cursing up a storm. So finally, you know, the first few times we, we tried to sit in general admission and both times my uncle successfully talked the, one of the ushers into letting us sit a little closer to get away from that element. But from then on, it was always in the load section after that. <laughs> Cause, um, my, uh, my uncle just, just couldn't take it. Um, but, uh, so I got to see a lot of bunk. But, but in 86, even though the AWA title was not what it was, um, uh, it was still Bachwinkle and Lawler, you know, which to me is just the classic matchup. And Idol comes in. Now, he's already, your dad's already had this issue with Tommy Rich. Uh, Rich has already been pissed off, and uh, he had to beat Rich, I think. Uh, they had two matches. And it was actually one of the better Tommy Tommy Rich matches you'll ever see, Uh wild brawl where your dad ultimately beats Tommy. I think it was a blood stoppage. And then, uh, your dad gets the right to wrestle Bockwinkle. Uh, Idol wrestles has a baby face on the underneath on that jab. I believe it was January 4th, 1986. Idol wrestles has a baby face. There appears to be nothing, you know, wrong. And suddenly he steps through the ropes and challenges your dad. He goes, you know, uh, I'd like, I'd like this shot too. World champion doesn't come here very often. You and I are friends. Why don't we have a match right now? And then the the win, if Nick will go to the back, and we'll just settle this issue. We're friends. Uh, I do the same for you, and you're now just like, no, I, it's it's my title shot. Uh, I don't have you know, I don't have an issue with you, awesome, we're friends. But you know, friendship goes out the window when when you're in this business. And then Idol goes, well, let me give you a little incentive, and he pushes your dad, and then your dad pushes him back, and Idol goes, okay. That's fine, I'm leaving, but you're, I just want you to know our friendship is on the rocks. And your dad turns his back, which you never should do on Austin Idol. And Idol swivels him around and punches him. And your dad you know, gets juice right before the bout with Bachwinkle starts. He's got this gusher going down his eye. And then he and Bachwinkle, and Bachwinkle at this point is like, what, I think 48, 49. <laughs> um, <laughs> and they go an hour. And it was one. It was one of the best matches uh, that I've ever seen them have. Uh, I think the best one was the '79 one-hour one Broadway. But uh, you know, here they are in '86 doing it all over again, uh, going one hour, and it was absolutely tremendous. But uh, you know, but that led to to this great money-making feud uh, with uh, your dad facing Idol and Rich. And I think a lot of that had to do with the fact that the fans still bought the world title as something that was important and, and worth fighting for. And that friends would often turn on each other to get that rare shot at the
5: championship. Yeah, and I mean, and that's, you know, that was the thing. I mean, you know, they just, they protected everything back then. They protected, you know, just the... You know the whole intrigue of of, of being the champion and, and and the belt and all that kind of stuff. To where you know nowadays it just you know flip flops back and forth so much that it just, it just doesn't have that same value, you know, to it as it, as it did back then. Um, you know, especially when you you talk about the times when you know guys like Blackwell or Flair or Hogan. I mean, they would they would be a, a champion for like a year or two or three years straight, you know, without ever you know, dropping the belt and, and things like that. So it, it it just gave it a lot of credibility. It just really meant something that made it special when a belt would finally change hands like that.
0: And hey, we want to thank Kevin for returning to the show. And as he said, world title changes meant a heck of a lot more. They were a lot more special When they were so infrequent, when guys like Ric Flair had reigns of one and two years, Nick Bockwinkle had like a four-year reign, Uh, Sam Martino, I think, had a six-year reign. And in, in this case, Kurt Hennig was well into one year as AWA World Heavyweight Champion before he fell to the King.
1: I also found it interesting, Scott, how the King didn't smarten up his kids, even into their late teens.
0: Yeah, I mean, you know, for them to not even know what the term "babyface" meant, and and actually, I, the the first time I believe that Kevin dropped that term into a conversation with his dad, he exploded and pulled the strap. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, you know, and that's one thing, too. I, I mentioned that to Kevin uh, in the interview and uh, he told me once he goes, God, man, I said, what? He goes, do you realize any time I screw up or get in trouble at school, which was often, I think, with Kevin? All of his friends would say, Oh, your dad's going to pop the strap. Your dad's going to pull the strap. <laughs> <laughs> You're going to get it when you get home." So, uh, you know, definitely being uh, the Son of the King had its perks. He had to go to the matches every night, even if you had to ride in the car with Randy Hills each week. Eh, still pretty cool. Uh, but uh, there were also things that were uh, were not so cool about it. Uh, number one, I know that uh, for years, Kevin kept an pict- autographed picture, a full-color picture of his dad, by his bedside, almost like a big fan would. And so it was really kind of a strange relationship because your father is always kind of larger than life as it is, and then for him to be this perceived sports hero it's got to be a little it's 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 special, but it's, it has to be a little bit confusing, I think, for a young man growing up. And we will be back with part two of that discussion. Well, Kevin will tell us a little bit more about his feelings, about his dad's chase of the World's Heavyweight Championship. And in fact, he was there that night. But of course, he had no idea of the outcome and was fearful that this indeed could be Lawler's last match. I want to remind everyone that Kentucky Fried Wrestling is a production of the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network. You can follow me on Twitter at Bowden. You can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash Kentucky Fried Wrestling. And if you want to find Brian, well, I'll let him tell you about it.
1: You can find me on Twitter at GreatBrianLast, and you can find the Arcadian Vanguard Podcast Network on Twitter at SuperPodcasts.
0: That's right. Well, For Brian Lass, this is Scott Bowden saying so long, everybody.
3: The announcers on this program are selected
2: and paid by parties other than this station, namely the promoters of championship wrestling.